Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Tonight on The Readout... That is incredibly damning. If you're a prosecutor, you really look for evidence of what the former president did personally. And if the DOJ either knows about or is soon to to interview those people who were sources for The New York Times, um, they're going to have a substantial criminal case. Substantial indeed. The fallout from the bombshell reporting that FBI agents seized more than 300 classified documents from Mar-a-Lago, some containing the most sensitive secrets. Shocking, but not surprising given Trump's history. Also tonight, Ron DeSantis fancies himself a political Tom Cruise. Seriously, you gotta see this to believe it. And voters today are choosing the wannabe Top Gun's opponent with democracy hanging in the balance. That's also true in Texas, where Beto O'Rourke is taking on Greg Abbott for governor. He joins me tonight. Plus, our worst fears are coming true. Republicans' forced birth laws are mandating women and girls to continue with pregnancies that will not even result in the birth of a living child. But the fight for abortion rights is on the march. We begin the readout tonight with what we're learning about just how highly classified the documents were that Donald Trump squirreled away at his Florida mansion resort and the security threat that they could present. According to a May letter from the National Archives to one of Trump's lawyers, the initial 15 boxes Trump turned over in January contained 700 pages that were marked as, quote, classified national security information up to the level of top secret and including sensitive, compartmented information and special access program materials. So what does that mean? Well, it suggests that some of the most highly protected material in the U.S. government material that, if disclosed, could betray sources and methods, was taken by Trump on his way out the door from the White House. And while his current and former lawyers have claimed that Mar-a-Lago is as secure as it gets, a veritable Fort Knox, if you will, there are countless examples refuting that claim and showing the extreme risk that Trump was willing to take with our national security. There is the Chinese businesswoman by the name of Yujing Zhang, Now, that is a name you might not be familiar with. She was actually deported last year to China after serving a prison sentence in southern Florida. That's because back in 2019, she trespassed at Mar-a-Lago, initially making it past Secret Service agents at a security checkpoint. Eventually, she was detained and found to be carrying four cell phones, a laptop computer, a hard drive, and a thumb drive that may have included some form of malware. And apparently, back at her hotel room, she had a device that detects hidden cameras and more than $8,000 in cash. Now, she claimed that she just wanted to meet Donald Trump. But as NBC News reported at the time, the full story remains unclear because prosecutors filed secret evidence under seal, saying it had national security implications. Judge Roy Altman wrote in court papers that releasing the evidence could cause serious damage to the country. 
but she wasn't the only one able to infiltrate the president's Florida residence. In 2018, a college freshman was able to sneak in, also passing through a Secret Service security screening. He was able to wander around for a while before he was stopped. The 18-year-old told a judge, I wanted to see how far I could get. Well, apparently pretty far. So if an 18-year-old can walk right in, what do you think might have happened in 2019 when Russian surveillance ships, a Russian surveillance ship was spotted off the coast of southern Florida? How difficult would it have been for the Kremlin to make their way in? When it comes to Mar-a-Lago, they wouldn't have had to even set foot on the property to cause a security breach. In 2017, journalists from ProPublica and Gizmodo parked a 17-foot motorboat behind Mar-a-Lago to test its internet security. They wrote, quote, within a minute, we spotted three weekly encrypted Wi-Fi networks. We could have hacked them in less than five minutes, but we refrained, unquote. Trump has shown just how protective he is about classified national security information. There was a time in 2017 when he was getting briefed on the public dining area in the public dining area of Mar-a-Lago about a North Korean missile test alongside Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe for all the paying members to see and overhear. Trump aides were using cell phone lights pointed towards sensitive documents to openly discuss how they should respond. And all of this happened before Trump decided to use his resort as a de facto Trump National Archive. As the New York Times reports, in total, more than 300 documents with classified markings have been recovered so far from Mar-a-Lago, according to multiple people briefed on the matter. So just think about what it could have meant if someone snuck into Mar-a-Lago since Trump left the White House. They could have made their way to any, to any one of the classified documents just sitting around the resort. And according to the Times, it's not like Trump was unaware of what was there. Multiple people briefed on the matter tell the Times the former president personally went through the boxes in late 2021 before handing over the first batch in January. NBC News has also reached out to federal authorities and the Trump team for comment, but has not received a response. Joining me now, Javed Ali, former senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council and associate professor at the University of Michigan's Ford School of Public Policy. Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Michigan Law School, and Antonio Finns, politics editor at the Palm Beach Post. Uh, thank you all for being here. I, I do want to go back, and I want to start off, and I'm going to start with you, Mr. Finns, just about Mar-a-Lago yeah. itself. We know it's a bit of a circus down there. It's got a golf club. It's, it's Donald Trump's little playground for celebrities and for his friends. Um, this is one of the headlines here, and this is from your reporting, and it says, since Trump won the presidency, Mar-a-Lago was always a national security red flag. When you have a location like the White House or the Texas Ranch, 99% of the people that are coming in and out are known, fully vetted individuals, depending on their clearances and access, um, said Ross Thompson, a longtime hand in private security, who's now CEO of Kovac mm-hmm. Global in West Palm Beach. Mar-a-Lago is a private club with potentially hundreds of guests and staff present throughout much of a 24-hour day during Palm Beach's social season that runs from October to mid-May. Um, so that mm-hmm. makes the vetting challenge harder. Talk about Mar-a-Lago. How open is it? How easy? I mean, it's obviously easy to get on. Well, you, we reported that. I mean, you, you mentioned the 18-year-old that walked through a tunnel that connects the main club to the beach club, and he just walked in because he wanted to see how far he could get. And then we had the, the two Chinese nationals. But the fact of the matter is that this is a club that is, it's, uh, it's unlike any other residence used by a, a 
previous president because it is a business. It is where hundreds of people have access to and not just the members, but their guests or friends, whoever they might bring in. Did this change at all, Mr. Finns, once Donald Trump was president of the United States? Did they change their security protocols other than having Secret Service there? From what I recall in the reporting, renting golf carts to drive them around. Other than that, did they change anything about security? No, I mean, you basically I, I went to events there. I mean, I gave them my driver's license. They did a background check to the extent that they did. Then I walked onto the property and then I was basically, you know, I could do, you know, I had things to do, but uh, I could have meandered around like any other guest there. Javed Ali, it seems obvious what a threat to national security that could be. But walk us through, just give us, you know, scaring is caring. That's one of the little things we have on the show. How dangerous would it be to have highly secret national security documents in a place like that? Troy, great to be with you and great to be with my colleague, Barbara, uh, too, uh, from Michigan. But uh, getting to your question, yeah, this is uh, extremely concerning uh, as someone who is a former intelligence professional like myself and then spending a year in the White House. When you're handling um, this type of information, whether it's coming to you in written form with documents or even what information you get orally, um, it has to be these conversations and the documents have to be uh, contained in what are called special compartmented uh, information facilities, so a SCIF. And you can't discuss or disclose anything outside the four walls of those kind of facilities. So the fact that there were hundreds of pages or, or dozens of documents to include, you know, very sensitive uh, documents um, in Mar-a-Lago for quite some period of time and not in a SCIF, as an intelligence professional, that to me is highly alarming. Can you... Explain in some way or, or, or conceive in your mind how it could be possible that highly secretive documents could have even left the White House without somebody knowing that it happened. Well, this must have happened in the process of President Trump uh, leaving the White House and why there wasn't a more thorough examination of documents that were being transferred out of the White House into uh, into his possession. That is an open question. We don't have an answer to that, but it shouldn't have happened. I mean, every time a president leaves, there should be a very methodical and deliberate search to make sure that someone even unintentionally doesn't walk away with these kind of documents. So that doesn't appear to have been the case. Hey, clearly not. Uh, Barbara, let, let's go to what happened with the actual process of the government saying, no, give us this back. So, Christina Bob, uh, in June, uh, a gentleman named Jay Brad, who's the chief of the counter intel, uh, the counter espionage section at the DOJ, went to Mar-a-Lago to meet with two Trump lawyers, Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob, and retrieve any remaining classified material for subpoena. Mr. Bratt and the agents, according to the, the reporting from The New York Times, who joined him were given a sheaf of classified material, according to two people familiar with the meeting. Mr. Corcoran then drafted a statement, which Ms. Bob, who was said to be the custodian of the document, signed. It asserted that, to the best of her knowledge, all classified material was there, had been returned, according to people familiar with the statement. That clearly is not true. Could Christina Bob, since she was the custodian of these documents, be in some trouble? Yes, absolutely. Now, it would have to be that she knew that she was making a false statement. It may be that she relied in good faith on misrepresentations made by other lawyers or even Donald Trump himself. But one of the really interesting things about that chronology is it shows the efforts by the Justice Department to get these documents back and by the National Archives. It starts with, you know, requests for voluntary compliance. And they say in January, here you go, 15 boxes, all set. And they realize in, you know, May that that's not all of it. Come on, hand it over. 
here's the subpoena this time. We mean it. This is backed by a court order. Turn it over. Empty your pockets. Give us everything. And they give a sheaf of documents. And then it turns out there's 26 more boxes. It takes a search warrant to get it back. And so, you know, I know there have been some accusations that the Justice Department and the FBI have engaged in overreach here by using a search warrant to get these documents back. If anything, I think it's been underreached. They have treated Donald Trump with such kid gloves. And as you've just heard from Javid, these are the nation's uh, crown jewels of secrets that have been kept off-site in a very vulnerable place for months and months and months. I would like to see a Justice Department, frankly, that acted a little more aggressively to safeguard our nation's secrets. Javed Ali, if I was to have uh, documents that should have been in a skiff and they were highly classified and they were at my house, um, how might I have been treated differently than how Trump was? Because Trump is making it sound, as Barb just said, as if he was, you know, treated like a, a common criminal, which it sounds like he might be. Uh, if, if you were in possession of those, trust me, you would have FBI agents knocking on your doors. And the same would have applied to myself and Barb when we were leaving government. Had we knowingly and willingly walked away with very sensitive documents uh, and then not turned them back over, even if somehow there was a mistake in the process, yes, the FBI would have come knocking as well. So I don't think this was an example of FBI overreach. I say that as a former FBI official, too. But I just think it was the Bureau, as Barb said, exhausting all or DOJ and the FBI exhausting all these different options and then using the last um, tool they had to get this information back in the government's hands. I just think they would have licked in the door. They would have kicked down the door and come and got those documents. <laughs> Barb, just to go back to this filing that Donald Trump um, put in, this was the judge's response, ordering the, the Trump to give details about the Mar-a-Lago search warrant wants, uh, lawsuit. So this is in response to the Trump lawsuit yesterday, asking a federal judge to appoint a special master to review the documents that were seized and give back anything that's not relevant. Judge Eileen Cannon, who's a Trump appointee, sets a Friday deadline that they need to address the multiple issues. Most importantly, what is the jurisdiction that the court has in this matter? Like, what do you want from me? Exactly what relief they're seeking from the judge, including whether they're seeking an injunction, and what effect this filing has on existing proceedings in the sealed search warrant case before the magistrate judge. What, what in, in, in plain English, in non-lawyer English, what does that mean? I think she's issuing an order saying, what the hell is this? It's procedurally just a mess. It's a brand new lawsuit. It states no cause of action. It is unclear why this wasn't filed with the magistrate judge who already has jurisdiction over this case and who's been deciding it. And she has asked some very obvious pointed questions. Uh, I think it would have been within her right to simply dismiss it as improvidently filed. But she's giving him the benefit of the doubt on a short uh, leash to explain what is it you're asking for? Why have you filed it here? And how is it that I have jurisdiction? Why aren't you going to ask the magistrate for this? So I, I think that's what she's asking for, that sort of clarity. It's really unclear to me why lawyers would have signed their names to this document. It is really just a long rant by Donald Trump uh, talking about how he's yet again a victim here. Substantively, asking for a special master is not unheard of. Sometimes it is uh, done in cases where there is likely to be uh, privileged documentation, attorney-client privilege. For example, Michael Cohen, when uh, his office was searched, a special master was appointed there to review the material as a filter to make sure that anything that was protected by attorney-client privilege didn't get turned over. That would make some sense. Here, though, the basis for those requests is executive privilege. And you can't supersede privilege by the very executive who owns it. And, and that is 
the executive branch, which is actually seeking these documents back. So it's a bit of a mess. I expect it to go nowhere, but the judge is giving him courtesy of uh, asking these questions to see if there's any basis for giving him any sort of relief here. He is getting the more courtesy than David yes. Petraeus, who was a military, he served this country, put his body on the line for the United States. General David Petraeus. He's Trump, who Mr. Bonespurs, who might have thieved classified materials being treated better than David Petraeus. Make that make sense. Uh, Javed Ali, Barbara McQuaid, Antonio Fins, thank you all very much. Up next, it is primary night with democracy on the line in Florida, and incumbent Democrats are duking it out in New York against each other. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. It's another big primary day with voters in two of America's largest states, New York and Florida, headed to the polls. Now, in New York, redistricting has led to multiple intra-party battles for Democrats. And then there's Florida, where Congressman and former Governor Charlie Crist and Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Fried are locked in a tight battle to take on current Governor Ron DeSantis. Let's start with MSNBC national political correspondent Steve Kornacki at the big board. And I know polls have just recently closed, but we know they got the panhandle coming in at eight, but the bulk of them have closed. So, Steve, what are we looking at? Yeah, and we're looking at a blowout, Joy. I mean, you can see there's just a, a slice of the state here. You mentioned part of the panhandle. It won't close till eight o'clock Eastern time, but it's a small sliver in terms of the overall vote. And Florida is one of those states. They count it very, very quickly. So you can see we've basically got two thirds of the vote already counted up here in the Democratic race. And all you see is that Charlie Crist blew throughout the state. One wow. exception there. That's where Gainesville, that's where the University of Florida is. That's where Nikki Fried's winning by a couple points. But these are just massive margins that you're seeing Chris rack up around the state. His base, his congressional district that he currently represents will be right here uh, in, in the uh, sort of Tampa area. But take a look at a place like Orange County. You know, this is where Orlando is. He's running near 60 percent of the vote. The big counties here in South Florida, Broward County, better than two to one. Miami-Dade, basically two to one. Palm Beach, basically two to one. So because the state doesn't all close till eight o'clock, NBC won't make an official characterization of this race until 8 p.m. Eastern. But again, you can see that's only because a very small sliver here, both geographically and in terms of the electorate uh, in the Democratic primary, a very small sliver won't close till eight. But I think you can clearly get the picture here that Charlie Crist 
already is having an extremely good night in this Democratic primary uh, in Florida. And again, winner of this Democratic primary gets Ron DeSantis in the fall. If this is indeed Charlie Crist, Charlie Crist was the Republican governor from 2006 to 2010. He ran as the Democratic nominee for governor in 2014 and lost in a close one to Rick Scott. This would be his third time running for governor, second time as a Democrat. Yeah. Real quick, uh, before I let you go, Steve, because just so what people don't understand, because people have come to think of Florida as like the worst voting state, you know, where people, they don't know what they're doing. Just to explain to folks who are not familiar with it, as you and I are, why Florida finishes so quickly, why yeah, they, why uh, we get numbers so fast. Yeah, no, it's a great point because we all remember 2000 in Florida yeah. and it was the site of the worst disaster for election reporting that we can remember two decades ago. But they made changes in the wake of that. And basically, Florida has extensive mail-in voting. It has extensive early voting and it has same day voting and they allow the processing of all those early votes, the processing of the mail in votes long before polls close on election night. And in fact, the rule is counties have the first 30 minutes after polls close. Counties must report out all of the early vote they have and all of the mail vote they have. So what it means is at seven o'clock Eastern time, that's why every election night, this will be true this fall, by the way, a little preview for folks, 7 p.m. Eastern time this fall. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at Florida because we're just going to get the most results from Florida. It lights up like a Christmas tree in those first 30 minutes. Oh, I remember it well. <laughs> Steve Carnaghy, the Carnaxter. Thank you very much, man, friend. I really appreciate you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, for his part, Ron DeSantis, he is already looking way past November, running the world's most transparent and in some ways most hilarious 2024 campaign. Look no further than his Top Gun-themed ad. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your governor speaking. Today's training evolution, dogfighting, taking on the corporate media. The rules of engagement are as follows. Number one, don't fire unless fired upon. But when they fire, you fire back with overwhelming (laughs) force. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, Lord, baby. Find somebody who loves you enough to never, ever, ever let you look that ridiculous on video. Come on now. I mean, what's his call name going to be? I hate drag brunch. Lord have mercy. Joining me me now is former Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri. She is an MSNBC political analyst and hopefully will get me together. Or Ali Vitale, (laughs) who's sitting next to me, NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent and author of the new book, Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet, is out today. Go and pick it up. Here it is. I got my copy. I'm going to get it signed before I let this lady leave here. Oh, you got it. Oh, but listen, (laughs) I got to come to you, my sister. Um, The Top Gun ad. (laughs) What woman would ever put an ad out like that? His wife <laughs> tweeted it out. I mean, it's one of those things where you where, where nobody who loves you should ever say that's a good idea. Somebody should have intervened. But that kind of ad. And I think it gets to kind of what you're talking about here. The macho factor of trying yeah. to sort of make yourself Tom Cruise. Yeah. When you clearly ain't Tom Cruise. Well, it doesn't get more masculine than Top Gun. And if you're in an executive role, you want to be as masculine as possible. And in Republican politics, yeah. you want to be extra as masculine as yeah. possible. Right. But it, that gave me the um, Dukakis with a big helmet. Vibe. A little bit, but it's yeah. also like in Arizona when he was with Carrie Lake. She yeah. said BDE, right? Yeah. Big DeSantis energy. This uh, is it, all kind of part and parcel to what they're trying to build as an image. And he has a lot of things. BDE ain't one of them. BDE, not one, it's not one of them. Let's Look, go I think it's outside Nikki my purview. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to Nikki Free. <laughs> he, he gives some energy, but that ain't the energy. Um, let's talk about Nikki Free. Now, that blowout is significant. Now, I yeah. presumed, and I have to be honest, that that was going to be the outcome that, 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 you know, in this state, even though Nikki Fried is statewide elected, you and I both know Florida is not a state that loves to elect women. 
Well, look, we all remember 2018 when Gwen Graham was trying to yes. make that argument and Andrew Gillum got the nomination. I was a race that I covered extensively. Yeah. And Florida really did think that they might have been on the cusp of not just electing a woman yeah. to run for that seat, but for electing their first female governor. And we all remember the ways that that shook out. Yeah. And I think that that kind of speaks to the broader landscape of what I talk about in the book, frankly, which is like, how do you run as a woman for positions where we haven't seen women successfully run That's before? Right. And that specter hangs over Florida, too. Well, but Claire, let me bring you in here because you now have Val Demings, who I would argue is the strong, the single strongest individual candidate, male or female, that they could have come up with to run statewide. She's just that person. She's got the right kind of down the road um, on that Harley energy. She's liked by everybody that knows her down there. Talk about her prospects then running in a state like Florida that has had an allergy to electing women statewide, other than a few people. Alex Sink and Nikki Freed are the exceptions, and I think they've had a, an AG. Well, I mean, it probably helps that Val Demings does love to ride motorcycles and is a police chief, not a sergeant, not a lieutenant, not a commissioner. She was the boss. And that's yeah. very unusual. To, I mean, it's becoming more common now, but it's only been in the last 10 years that you saw women as police chiefs in major metropolitan areas. And Orlando is certainly a big area for someone to run the police department. So she's got the kind of bona fides that frankly help with the problem that Allie is alluding to. And that is there are still people out there that think if a woman is so strong to do it, then she's too strong and I don't like her. Mm. And I think Val Demings has got that great combination of strength but she's normal and likable and can laugh at herself and smiles a lot. I think Marco Rubio's in trouble. I know we're not talking about Florida as often as we're yeah. talking about Pennsylvania or, but let me just put a marker down here. I think Marco Rubio's in trouble. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Allie, it, it, Florida has a way of feeling predictable and predictably it's starting to look like it's becoming a red state. Yeah, it's trending Ohio. But it is still a state that the results are narrow. Let's not forget yeah. that Ron DeSantis barely beat Andrew Gillum. Well, yeah, I, I was there for those recounts. And by the way, they trigger automatically at 0.5% and 0.25%. So yeah. that's part of and the And Nelson, reform. it was close too. The exactly. Nelson race was close as well. Both of those, exactly. And so I think that's one of the realities of Florida is it is always going to be a swingy swing state, even when those swings yeah. end up on the red side of the spectrum. I also I also think, though, with Val Demings, one of the reasons that she's such a powerful presence in this Senate race, yes, is because of her own profile that she brings to the table, but it's also a result of the Biden veep stakes, where they had as many women in that veep stakes more than ever before because yeah. he laid that mile marker. But the goal of it, from my conversations with people who were running it, was to elevate as many of these women to the national consciousness in a positive way as possible. You can kind of argue that the whole ambition, is she too ambitious news cycle, mm -hmm. detracted from that. But by and large, people like Val Demings, Tammy Duckworth, Gretchen and Whitmer, all of these names that are big names now in politics and frankly will be going forward in the Democratic sure. Party are elevated by that process because Biden laid that mile marker. Absolutely. And Claire, I, I have to, it would be, I'd be remiss in not asking, in the end, how do you think this X factor of Roe v. Wade being gone changes the prospects for, there are a lot of women candidates. You've got Sherry Beasley in North Carolina. You've got Val Demings. You've got multiple, you know, women candidates. Does this change the dynamic? Yeah, Maggie Hassan, Catherine Cortez Masto, yeah. you know, there, there are a bunch of women that are running. But more importantly, 
I think what it has done, typically the midterms, always joy, it's a problem of getting voters motivated. Trust me, women are motivated after the Dobbs decision. We saw it in Kansas. The suburban women of America and Marco Rubio is one of many candidates who thinks the government should force birth on a victim of incest. That is not going to fly with American women. And I think they're going to turn out. And I think it made this election into something other than a red wave election. That singular Supreme Court decision and the fact that all these Republican legislatures are trying to go to the the ultimate extreme position in terms of how they are now legislating abortion rights in their states. Uh, I agree with you 100%. I think our analysis is exactly the same on this. Uh, We will see how that turns out. Claire McCaskill, thank you very much, as always. Ali Vitale, who dressed to match her book, which I thoroughly respect. (laughs) Fashion sartorial choices. Very, very respected here. Uh, Thank you very much, Ali, and best of luck with the book. All right, Beto O'Rourke, coming up. Beto O'Rourke is running for Texas governor, and we have a lot, a lot to talk with him about, from extreme weather to the big lie and what it all means for Texas and for the country. Stay with us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that Texas has become one of the frontline states facing the very real consequences of the climate crisis. From Sunday evening into midday Monday, the skies opened up on the Dallas-Fort Worth area, where thunderstorms dropped massive amounts of rain, inundating streets, flooding homes, and forcing drivers to abandon their cars. One woman was killed after her car was swept away by floodwaters. While rainfall in Dallas was enough to break a one-day record, it was not enough to end the state's worst drought since 2011. Almost the entire state was under some sort of severe-level drought. It's been so bad that cattle ranchers have been forced to sell off their cows because pasture land is dried up and hay is too expensive. Parts of South Texas served by reservoirs across the Rio Grande, the Rio Grande are facing water shortage problems. And the excruciatingly high temperatures have put increased pressure on an already fragile electrical grid. Governor Greg Abbott, who earlier today refused to even utter the words climate change, has made Texas the poster child for fighting climate-focused legislation, directing state, state agencies to challenge any, any federal action. Naturally, he opposes the Inflation Reduction Act, even though Texas will be a major beneficiary since Texas produces more wind energy than any other state, and it's second only to California in clean energy jobs. But that's not the only storm that's brewing in Texas. Joining me now 
is a Democratic nominee for Texas governor, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke. He's the author of the new book, We've Got to Try, How the Fight for Voting Rights Makes Everything Else Possible. And I definitely, voting is, it is my thing. It's my favorite thing to talk about. Uh, so I definitely want to get to that with you. But I want to start by talking about this situation in Texas, because it feels like in some fundamental ways, this massive state that could be a little country has utterly failed to account for what climate change will do to it. First of all, we just want to urge everyone in, in North Texas to follow the precautions laid out by public leaders like Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins. Um, also, make sure that you're getting in your damage reports for FEMA reimbursement. We're there for those who are undergoing the worst flooding and the worst rainfall that we've seen in a thousand years in this part of Texas. But Joy, to your point, these are the consequences of our emissions are in action in the face of the consequences of climate change and our inability to take the right steps, the action necessary to confront this before it's too late. No state contributes more to climate change than, than Texas. No state suffers the consequences more than the state of Texas. But the, the upside of this is no state could do more to change this than the state of Texas. We're the energy leader of the world today, primarily through oil and gas. And we're grateful for that. But let's expand that leadership to include more renewable energy, wind and solar and hydrogen and geothermal, the jobs that come along with that. We want those here in Texas. And we want to do our part before it's too late. Dallas, um, Mesquite, these communities understand it today. Houston understood it in 2017. And as you mentioned, much of the state is going through an historic drought that is just hammering these farmers and ranchers throughout Texas. It's time for us to act. You know, and Texas, because of its scale, because of its size, it really has become sort of an experiment, like a laboratory. Unfortunately, for some of the worst things that have happened uh, in the United States in terms of our, our culture, in terms of voting rights, it led the way in making it incredibly hard for people to vote, focused on, you know, Houston, that area, Harris County, um, on abortion. Um, stripping women of the right to choose and then putting bounties on their heads in terms of textbooks, refusing to even have Texas history properly taught in schools, which impacts textbooks all over the country. How do you change that? It's all connected. Um, I don't think we get these results like a total ban on abortion with no exception for rape or incest that Greg Abbott signed into law. I don't think you get the attacks on public school educators who are so grossly underpaid and under constant attack from their governor and their state government. You don't get this if we have a true functioning democracy where the right to vote is respected. But today in Texas, it's harder to vote. It's harder to register to vote here than in any other state. And it's by design. And some Texans are more the focus of that suppression than are others. When you have 750 polling place closures in our state, twice the number of the next closest state, and most of them concentrated in the fastest growing black and brown neighborhoods in the state of Texas, then you understand exactly what's happening. The only answer to this is more democracy, getting on the doors of those who are the targets of suppression and intimidation, making sure that we help to turn them out so that they provide the margin of victory on the night of November 8th. That's what this book we've got to try is about. We, we've been up against the odds before, greater odds, and have overcome them. So not only is this possible, We've done it before. Uh, Lawrence Nixon, I try to tell his story in the book, an El Paso physician founded the first chapter of the NAACP in the state of Texas. And when Texas outlawed voting 
by African-Americans in 1923. He fought it for 21 years, won two signal Supreme Court victories, integrated our elections in 1944, and set the ground for LBJ to sign the Voting Rights Act in 65. Those victories came from Texas. So this is the home to that suppression and this extremism that you're describing, but it's also the home to people who meet the moment. And that's what we're going to do in this election. The last thing, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Uvalde, the tragedy there, and the many other gun massacres that have broken the hearts of, of the entire country, if not the world. Um, it's one of the things that you've been strongest on. You had a little F-bomb moment recently that I think a lot of people were, you know, hell yeahing you for. Why is it so difficult to pass gun reform in Texas when you could do it in Florida, where Marion Hammer is the de facto governor? It's because of Greg Abbott, our current governor, who is more beholden to the NRA, the special interest, the gun manufacturers, than he is to the very people he's supposed to serve, especially our kids. It's been 13 weeks since those 19 kids and their two teachers were taken from us. 13 weeks where he's failed to call a special session, even though he's called them for CRT and going after trans kids and weakening the right to vote in the state of Texas, won't call it to save the lives of our children. And now they're all starting this next school year, Joy, without any new protections to prevent them from experiencing the same exact fate that those kids in Uvalde or Santa Fe High School before them or El Paso, Midland, Odessa, Sutherland Springs, five of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history have taken place in this state in the yeah. last five years. We need action and we need change and we need it now. Beto O'Rourke, um, thank you so much uh, for being here. Best of luck with the book. I hope everybody will check it out and read it. It's so important. It's about voting and, and that is so important. Best of luck in your campaign, Beto O'Rourke. Appreciate you. All right, and coming up next, um, a reality, the reality of a post-war America is here. And like many people feared, it, 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 too, it too closely resembles The Handmaid's Tale. Stay with us. The end of federally protected abortion rights, thanks to the Supreme Court's far-right majority, has quickly eroded and fragmented our healthcare system. We hear these stories daily, and they are truly awful and dystopian. The pregnant Louisiana woman, who must either carry a fetus that has no skull to term, or cross state lines to obtain safe abortion care. The woman undergoing a miscarriage, sent home from the hospital, instructed to return when blood filled a diaper more than once an hour. And a Florida court ruling that a parentless 16-year-old seeking an abortion was not mature enough to determine whether to terminate her pregnancy, but apparently mature enough to be a mother by force. The anti-abortion crusade, they call themselves pro-life, but that's just another term created to gaslight America. They don't value life at all. They don't value your health, your privacy, or your bodily autonomy, or your humanitarian right to live freely and fully. These horrific headlines about people and their lives is their vision for America. One Republican lawmaker in South Carolina now understands the consequences of his actions after learning about a 19-year-old woman whose water broke after just 15 weeks of pregnancy. The attorneys told the doctors that because of the fetal heartbeat bill, because that 15-week-old had a heartbeat, the doctors could not extract. There's a 50% chance, greater than 50% chance, that she's going to lose her uterus. There's a 10% chance that she will develop sepsis and herself die. That weighs on me. I voted for that bill. These are affecting people. No kidding. We don't expect the rest of the party to see the light, and we certainly don't have time to spare. 
Right now, one in three American women has already lost abortion access. It is an astonishing statistic, also a murky one, based on a chaotic and confusing landscape where abortion trigger bans are in effect, while other forced birth laws are tied up in the courts. But one thing is for certain, the post-Roe landscape is here and it is merciless which is why Planned Parenthood is pouring a record $50 million into this year's midterm elections in an effort to elect abortion rights supporters across the country. Alexis McGill-Johnson, president of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, joins me next. Stay right there. The future of women's reproductive rights in post-Roe America absolutely, hands down, depends on who gets elected this November, point-blank period, and who controls the Congress and the state legislatures, which is why Planned Parenthood is spending a record $50 million in a bid to galvanize voters. Joining me now, Alexis McGill-Johnson, president of Planned Parenthood. Let's talk about this $50 million. The states that I have on my list here in front of me are Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. What's the plan? And in your view, what is at stake? Joy, look, as you described in your intro, like what is at stake is the fact that abortion rights we know are going to play a defining role in the 22 midterms because people are experiencing the reality of what these bans have meant to them currently and what they've always been designed to do, which is to harm healthcare, which is to harm patients, which is to challenge providers and people who have taken oaths to, to save lives and to protect people and putting them in really challenging circumstances to your to your uh, example of, of making people choose uh, how they are going to address uh, a challenge with a an intended pregnancy that they can no longer uh, provide access um, to abortion with when it's no longer viable. That's why Planned Parenthood advocacy and political organizations are running our largest ever electoral program in 2022 because people are are enraged. They are uh, completely recognizing the fact that there are electeds all over this country that are responsible for the mess that they were in, and we're going to hold them accountable. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're talking about give, uh, forcing women to give birth essentially to a corpse, which could cause sepsis and kill the woman that is carrying this dead uh, fetal, this dead fetus. That's what they're saying. The law say you have to do it. What do you make of these lawmakers, like the one gentleman who suddenly, uh, you know, after they vote for it, then they realize that what they passed could result in a teenager dying because she can't terminate a, a pregnancy that is not viable. Look, it's it's the proverbial dog who caught the car, right? Like they, they it's this person who like had this goal that they had been hell bent on trying to make sure that they were banning access to abortion with not really understanding fully the implications for what it means when you take away control from people to govern their bodies, when you take away uh, the ability for actual providers to make decisions for their patients in ways that help them, um, you know, uh, save their lives. And so I think that that's what's actually happening uh, with many of these folks that they didn't really understand the full implications. And we also see the number of politicians and electeds who are introducing laws that would further constrain the right, you know, introducing bills to, to criminalize what it means to travel across state lines to get access to care, further putting uh, fear in and a chilling effect on, um, on what it means to, to get access to care. All of these things, I think, are, you know, what what people who are running for office now have to look at and be able to answer. Uh, and it's what Planned Parenthood advocacy organizations and other partners are going to be holding them accountable to. 
And, and specifically, what's the plan for these funds? Is this about funding individual candidates? Is it about funding state parties? What is the specific plan? It's about mobilization. Look, I mean, what we have seen in the immediate aftermath of Roe v. Wade, right, is that we have we saw these anti-abortion candidates continue to double down and pursue a deeply radical, extreme, unpopular agenda around uh, continuing to constrain access to care. And I think that what we have done is basically just show people what their choices are. You can vote for the people who are really extreme on these issues, um, or you can actually vote to govern your own body with people who actually support um, your access to choice. Just look at Kansas, right? Abortion rights were literally on the ballot, uh, you know, and we saw Kansas come out in droves to support uh, the right to to choose. And so I think that's really incredibly important. The majority of Americans do support access to abortion in every single state. And, and when they really look at what's happening, they look at the number of states that have done these restrictions, it's also actually helping us understand how gerrymandered these states have become, how it is possible that you can have a state where there is majority support, but you actually can't have the, the laws that you want because you have these politicians who have been safely put into these seats. And so I actually think, as my colleague at NARAL, Mini Timaraja, likes to say, abortion is actually going to save democracy. Because if we can go state by state and we can actually transform the way in which people understand not just what it means to fight for abortion access, but what it means to actually transform how we vote in each state and vote locally to ensure that yeah. protection— that's what's at stake right now. And by the way, uh, hopefully the message is being communicated. It's control of state legislatures that determines who controls your body at this point. State legislatures right. and governors. Uh, Planned Parenthood Action Fund President Alexis McGill-Johnson, thank you very much for all you do. And that is tonight's readout. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.